Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. Thank you so much. I want to ask you to stand just for a moment. So through the centuries, and this is not, it's because of Christmas, it's not related to the holiday, I'd like you to greet one another, but here's how I want you to do it. No, hello, uh, how's it going? Aren't you sad that the Gators didn't make it into the playoffs? None of those things. Once you look at that person next to you, and preferably find, do it with more than one person, find somebody you don't know that's nearby, and shake their hand, but look them in the eye. And everybody's going to be doing this, so it's all right. <laughs> Say, peace be to you. And then they'll respond. So go ahead, give it a try. Just peace be to you. You can go ahead and have a seat. That is a wonderful statement to be echoing around in this room, and it sets the stage. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But first, I got to tell you about something I read about in the Washington Post. Parents, you think you've had some issues with something one of your toddlers has done. I don't know if you've had this issue. Jackie and Ben Belknap live in Salt Lake City, Utah. They are big Utah football fans. Any Utah football fans here? (laughs) You know, there could be somebody watching from Utah, like my son right now. So, okay, all right, Carl's got it. Any other pretenders? Uh, Well, Ben and Jackie are not pretenders. They wanted season tickets. Couldn't really afford them. Finances were a bit tight. Her parents said, we'll give you season tickets and you can just pay us back. We'll buy them for you. And you can take like a year and just little time. They said, thank you so much. So they saved up a little each month. And they had just one more month or two to go. I'm not sure exactly. It was almost a year. And they had saved up $1,060, and so they went to get the envelope and their special place in the bedroom where they had been hiding it and keeping it to just add uh, one more payment to them, and to their shock, it wasn't there. And Ben said, did you do anything with it? She said, nope. Jack said, did you do anything with it? Nope. They start tearing their bedroom apart, living room, searching the whole house, looking for... $1,060, and freaking out. And then Jackie's weak, shaking voice came from their office. Honey, I found it. And in their office, there's a shredder. And her two-year-old son, Leo, had been watching her shred things, and he felt like this would be helpful to mommy and daddy. And so he didn't do just a bill or two, he did all $1,060. 
She first said she cried, and then she said she laughed. You just can't make that kind of stuff up. A thousand sixty dollars. Something that they felt was so important to them. Now shredded. You ever had anything like that happen in your life? They think it's the story's over, the story's not over. Who knew that within our Bureau of Printing and Engraving for the U.S. Treasury, there is a particular department for mutilated currency. <laughs> Seriously, that's his name, Mutilated Currency Department. What you do with Mutilated Currency Department is they want you to take whatever currency has been destroyed, marred, eaten by rodents, collect it, put it in a Ziploc bag, and send it off to Washington. Now, don't be getting any ideas. You've, they do have to verify it's actually money. And some of you are thinking right now, you're going to be familiar with the government because you've just broken the law by shredding money. Are you, and, 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 and we did look this up, make sure it's, it's, it's legal. It's not. So, are you kidding me? We're at the end of the year. We've got a huge dream ahead of us. We've got to get together financially. You think I'm going to be shredding $1,000? But it is pretty realistic, play money. But uh, so what you're, you, you do, you send this off to the, the, the Bureau of Mutilated Currency, and they send back to you repaired money, new money, hold money. Say, how many people do this? Last year, they had over 30,000 claims, $30 million dollars going from this to this. Now, there's very few people, I would guess, within the sound of my voice, that's had this happen to $1,000, but there's not a one of us who hasn't had this happen with a job, with a relationship, with an addiction, with their health. And we wish there was a bureau for mutilated humanity. And there is. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can look up at the screens and read along with us. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, you can pick one up in the welcome desk as our gift to you. This is a classic passage for Christmas. And a lot of people think that the way to deal with this at Christmas time is, okay, that's pretty cool. I'm going to leave all this 
and Christmas will distract me enough. And some of you are in the midst of deep brokenness, deep shredded humanity. It could be a loss of somebody you love. It could be a, a job situation, health. And you're struggling like you've never struggled before. And you're wondering, why can't I put on the whole Christmas cheer thing? Let me tell you why you can't. Because you're being authentic. The people that move into pretending are the people that use Christmas as a drug, as a distraction of nostalgia, of, of hot cocoa, and of Christmas lights and familiar carols. And, and all right, let's just put this aside until mid-January. No, you don't put it aside. So, well, this isn't the place to celebrate Christmas. This is the best place to celebrate Christmas. Joseph and Mary, you know the context. We've been talking about it for a couple of weeks. Living in Galilee, but they've headed down to Bethlehem, the city of David, because that's where Joseph is from. The census is happening. Joseph and Mary are ostracized by their family. They've got this pregnancy that is not explained. Joseph's, Mary had a dream from an angel. Joseph had a dream validating that. But we don't, as far as we know, nobody else got dreams. So the whole family, he's got other family in Bethlehem. They are abandoned. They're in a stable. And the king of creation is checking in. Meanwhile, the lowest on the socioeconomic ladder, shepherds, poorest of the poor, they live out in the fields. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And in the midst, they've just become Paralyzed by this, deflated by it, no hope. Because sooner or later you realize Christmas is not going to do it. And we come back to say, well, if we're not engaged with the true Christmas, then all of a sudden that's when the holidays just weigh us down. And you move into numbness, you move into survival, you move into a partitioned existence. They're there just going through their routine and in the midst of their routine, an angel appears. And the angel says, they were terrified, he's shown around them the glory of the Lord, the kabod, the doxa, the brilliance, the beauty, the weight, the splendor, shows around them. They were terrified. The angel says, don't be afraid. And here's why. I bring you evangelion. I bring you gospel. I bring you good news. Not for the inauguration of a new holiday. I bring you good news, and it's for this. Your shreddedness, your shatteredness, your brokenness. And it's going to bring great joy for all the people. Today, the angel says, in the town of David, a Savior, Messiah, 
A savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord, the King of all creation, the Alpha, the Omega. This will be a sign to you. We could spend a day talking about, okay, what do you think would be an appropriate sign to give if God would inhabit his creation? I think we would come up with a number of ideas, but I don't, th- I don't think we'd think of this one. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths, rags, lying in a manger. You know what a manger is? It's a trough. Livestock trough. They've scooped out the rotting food, put some rags there, and there is the king of all creation, Messiah, Savior. Hmm. And suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appear. This is not... Four guys in bathrobes about to do a little quartet. That sky is filled with the heavenly host. And they are praising God. They accompany the angel in this proclamation, and they do it by singing a, a, a hymn, an aria, a proclamation. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, you and I, if you've been hanging around church, and even if you haven't, if you just watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special, you've heard this. And we hear it over and over and over, and we think, okay, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to all those. Stop for a minute. What we're about during this Advent comes out in the title of the series, Rediscovering Awe. Let's peel back the layers of cliches and familiarity and carols that we love and nostalgia and dig into the depth, the width, the height, the breadth, the substance of why this is so significant. And it is not significant because it was the beginning of a holiday. Jesus wasn't even born on December the 25th. It goes so much deeper. And the first clue that we have of rediscovering all involves us authentically engaging the mess, the shreddedness, the stuff that has been, the older you get, the bigger the pile gets. You guys know that. The stuff that happens. So let's rediscover all by letting the angels sing to us. So go back to those words and their three phrases. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So rediscovering all, we're encapsulating, letting these guys sing to us. This is not a hymn that they just picked out of nowhere. They didn't just say, hey, you know, we're heading down, the baby's been born, Gabriel, you know a good tune? Yeah, I got one, I think. Uh, Remember that thing we sung a couple of millennia? No. This was so intentional. Every phrase, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. 
So what's it look like to rediscover awe? Begins with uh, engaging with the joy. Joy can't be bought. Happiness might can be bought and it's temporary. Joy cannot be purchased. Two weeks ago, we looked at that with Pastor Nathan. Last week, we looked at that first phrase, glory. Engaged with that, peeled back the layers. It's not just some nice religious word that people, church people throw it on. Hey, glory, glory to God, glory, glory be. No, 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 glory. The weight, the splendor, the depth, the sufficiency, the self-existence. It's God's ultimate aim in all of creation, and it is why you've been made, and you've been made. It's why your heart beating and my lungs are breathing. It's for the glory of God. It's not a sidebar to saying, hey, it's not about us. No, our food, our fuel is God's glory. And the tragedy of our sin, the tragedy of you and me, we've all got PhDs in this. God, we know best how to operate as human beings. We don't need you. The Bible calls that sin. And the tragedy of our sin, Romans 3.23, as we looked at last week, is that it causes us to fall short of the glory of God. So because of my sin, I miss the, the doxa, the weight, the splendor, the beauty beauty, the sufficiency, the enoughness of God in my relationships, my vocation, my recreation, my laughter. I'm missing the glory of God in my purpose, my sense of meaning, significance. It's not there. And what these angels are announcing is what was in the garden, perfect and complete, the glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. Once again, that will be the case. And what's enabling that sin to be paid for is at the epicenter of God's plan is this baby occupying a cattle trough to restore glory to human beings and do all of creation. And as if that's not enough, then comes the next phrase in this hymn. This heaven authored, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, what? Come on, come on, you just said it. Peace. So what's peace? A lot of people think peace is what I get when all the kids are out shopping and I can just be still for a little bit. Peace is when I don't have all this stuff. Peace is when I, 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 I get away a little bit and just try to forget about all of that. It's not peace. There are over 400 references in the Old Testament and New Testament, to, English word translated peace. In the Old Testament, uh, <clears throat> are 346 references to peace, only uh, 38 of them are referring to an absence of conflict, an absence of war, an absence of difficulty. The rest of them are referring some, to something internal. You guys know Hebrew. You know the Hebrew word for peace. What is it? Shalom. One of the deepest, richest things. What you uttered to that other person is one of the most powerful things a human being can say to another human being. It's not just, hello, how's it going? If I say to you, peace to you, I'm saying that to you in the midst of all of this. Shalom to you. Shalom means wholeness, completion. It means flourishing thriving, 
Shalom is what these whole bills represent. The fall is what's represented by this. So peace isn't passive. A lot of people say, especially in religious context, you know what peace is. You get in a way and humming the right tune and repeating the right phrase and et cetera, et cetera. No, peace is something that that is active that I'm, I'm to engage with. Psalm 34 makes this proclamation. Verse 14, sit around and hope peace will find you. No, what? Seek peace. Pursue it. Go after it. In the midst of the shreddedness, seek out shalom. Romans chapter 14, verse 19. Let us therefore, when it's convenient, and then we can find the time, and once we're done with our to-do list, and if it comes easy, hopefully you can find peace. No. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to shalom. So if I encounter shalom, what am I encountering? Nicholas Waltersdorf described it as human flourishing. Humanity thriving. Shalom is me doing what I'm made to do. Our vision at Northland is engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. That's not some trite phrase off to the side that is absolutely central to the agenda of God for this. He says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, to destroy, to shred to take every dream you've got and dash it, to seduce you with mirages, to seduce you and me with lies. He says, let me tell you why I've come. I've come that you might, instead of this, that you might have life, that you might have wholeness and have it to the full, have it according to what it was originally intended. Nobody has been in the midst of this and not said, whether you're a believer or not, and have not said, this is not the way it ought to be. Why do we say that? Because we've got an internal compass embedded in our imageness. We're a mago Dei, created in the image of God, and we know this is not what it ought to be. And Jesus says, let me Let me lead you to fullness again, to wholeness again, to thriving again. John 10.10 is a shalom statement. So instead of trying to ignore this, to rediscover awe is to engage with it in light of what happened in that manger in the next 33 years, and in the next three days, in the next 40 days after that, and then the next 2,000 years after that. So, I take my shreddedness and I say, God, all right, I'm going to send this in to the Bureau of Mutilated Humanity. He says, Evangelion, the good news is, this is what I'm going to give you. 
You give me the shreddedness. I'll send back to you the wholeness. So what's that look like? It means me engaging, seeking shalom. So how do I seek shalom? What, I'm, as I'm embracing this box, what I'm going to do is give you four realities of shalom. I've got to engage with all four of those. Three won't do it. It's got to be all four for biblical shalom, the shalom of Jesus, for us to, to inhabit a place of peace. So j- this box has four sides. Shalom has four sides. Let's look at them one at a time. The first reality I've got to engage with, I've got to pursue, is His redemption. So the the, the shalom of Jesus comes in the form of His redemption. Some people say, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. I knew you were going to talk about something like that. But yeah, let's get back to this getting… Fa- That's the root of it. Directly or indirectly, it's the root of our shreddedness. I'm just going to let that settle for a second. Christmas is a time not just to acknowledge a baby who grew up, but a baby who grew up to die. No other person has been born with the purpose of dying. Now, all of us are born with the inevitability of death. The only person who didn't have to choose death is the actual one who came with that as his purpose. Romans chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says this, he says, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a regular Bible study person, maybe already walking with Jesus, you read these, you read his introduction stuff and say, yeah, yeah, all right, now let's get to the, no, no, don't stop. Stay there. Grace and peace. He actually begins, Paul begins every one of his epistles with that. You know why? They're sisters. Shalom comes as a result of grace. Grace is God giving to me not what I deserve, but what I need. And some of this has happened to me, but I've certainly participated in some of it, and I need the grace of God. The grace of God is, is centered upon the cross. And the cross has in its crosshairs my sin addressing that. Neil Planning, a guy that mentored me a little bit years ago in theology, wrote a book called A Brevary of Sin, and he says in it, sin is the vandalism of shalom. At the core of my shreddedness is my sin. And so when Paul starts every one of his epistles, he's saying, grace and peace to you. And actually, that's probably a better, more holistic thing than just to say, hey, peace to be to you, but grace and peace to you, because the peace is going to come from the grace. We'll unpack that a little bit more next week. But you see that over and over in Scripture, in, in, in uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, and the way of peace they do not know. We don't know the way of shalom, and it's because of the deceitfulness of our sin. And we think what's going to address this is X, Y, or Z, and it's usually X, Y, or Z is going to get us into further shreddedness. What's going to address it is first my sin being dealt with. Guilt is something that causes us a lot of stress during the holidays and the other 364 days. So it's 
It's December. I've been here a few years now. Do you guys know me well enough? So here's the question. It's Advent. I've got my hands in my pocket. What's in my pocket? I'm sounding like Bilbo Baggins right now, I know, but what's in my pocket? You guys rock. Now, if you're new here, you're thinking, I am missing something. It's a nail. Every day during Advent, I have a nail in my pocket. So I'm talking with people, I'm hearing about their pain, hearing about mine, being reminded of my shreddedness and my inadequacies. Every now and then, my hand goes into my pocket, and I'm not even expecting, and all of a sudden, hits that metal. Why do I carry a nail in my pocket? It's to remind me that the baby grew up and that he was born not to be the mascot of a holiday, but the savior of the world. And that includes being the one who paid an infinite price that would otherwise have taken me eternity to pay, to heal me. Because an offense against an infinite God's an infinite offense requires an infinite payment. It's going to take me infinity to pay. The only other option is for the infinite God-man to say, let me pay it on your behalf. That's why Paul says grace and peace. And paying that debt. Luke chapter 19, verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, Jesus wept over it and he said, if you, even you had only known on this day What would bring you shalom? But it's now hidden from your eyes. Does he weep over me? Does he weep over you saying that? We're just looking for shalom in all the wrong places. It comes ultimately submitting before his work on the cross. That's an offense. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It's it's an assault on the intellectual pride of people. Really? Really? But at the core of of the gospel, over and over, you see the necessity of the cross. So Jesus, uh, the the night before he, he gave his life in the upstairs room, John 14, verse 27, he says, peace I leave with you. And my peace, my shalom, I give you. Uh, I'm not giving you the kind of peace that the world gives. It's counterfeit. It's distraction, it's anesthetic, it's painkiller. I'm giving you something real. So he died on the cross, paid a price, and then he appears to them in John 20. And you see a phrase coming up over and over. Uh, You'll see Orthodox Jews even today greet one another. Shalom Aleichem. Peace be to you. Jesus shows up as the resurrected Christ. In verse 19 of John 20, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. Is he just saying, hello? Uh -uh. In fact, the very next verse it says, and then he showed them his his hands and his side and his feet. And then the very next verse, verse 21, again, Jesus said, peace be with you, shalom be with you. Then in verse 26, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you, peace be with you, peace be with you. What's he saying? He's saying, 
Shalom be with you. And it's not just a wishful thinking on my part. I have paid the price with my blood for you to be restored and no longer shackled by the hurricane of your rebelliousness. You are healed. Shalom be with you. And it's the first time that had ever been spoken since the fall with substance. Everything that it, in terms of what had already happened, up to that point, shalom aleichem was a, a preview, was a hope, was, was wistful thinking of what one day could be. And now he is saying, shalom, be with you, and here's why. Grace and shalom. Colossians chapter 1. Paul writes to the church in Colossians and he says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making shalom through his blood shed on the cross. Isaiah 53, a great messianic text. But he was pierced, the Messiah was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Look at that substitution going on. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us, shalom, was upon him, and by his wounds were healed. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Not wishful thinking. But you brought all of this. Go ahead and stand in the midst of it and let him give you this. But that's just one side of the box. It has three, four sides, three, three more. Here's the next one. If I'm going to engage, pursue his shalom, it's not going to just involve me pursuing his redemption. And that's a call to every one of you. I don't care how long you've been coming to church. You've never bowed the knee, trusted Christ, received his work on the cross for you. Do it today. Let's get this going. Come alive. Be forgiven. That's just the beginning. Second side to the box. Second reality is his restoration. For me to pursue shalom is to engage with not only his redemption, but his restoration. His redemption pays the way for his restoration. All right, you guys did great with the nails. Let's try it again. Why don't you try something else? Fill, 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 complete the sentence. Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty. This is a great quiz, isn't it? The teacher gives you the answers on the board. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Originally... It was popularized by, in, um, I'm about to say Wizard of Oz, it's popularized in, in Alice in Wonderland, but originally it was in 1818 it came out in Middle English. Here's that last phrase, look at that last phrase, couldn't put Humpty together, and here it is in the original uh, Middle English, cannot place Humpty Dumpty as he was before. Isn't that the truth? There's, there's more than one of you here. And it's actually every one of us, if we'll be authentic about this, that thinks, man, that, I screwed up so badly. It can't be put together again. 
<laughs> May the angel of the Lord appear to you right now and sing, say, I bring you Evangelion of great joy. Our children spoke it to us. They spoke it over us. Did you hear them? Isaiah 61. Messianic prophecy. This is the Messiah speaking, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord. He's on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And He sent me to bind up. Yo! Bind up the brokenhearted. Those people that think, man, there are more pieces here than can ever be collected or healed or put back together. He came to bind that up, to restore, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what I'm talking about. We'll talk about that next week some more. Grace and peace and the day of vengeance of our God on all that is marring His creation and, and, and shielding us, keeping us, imprisoning us, preventing us from His glory, to comfort all who mourn. And then, now look at the exchanges. I love this. Shatteredness, wholeness. It's an exchange. He says, I came to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oils of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. We spent all last December talking about this. You know what it is? It's a bowl, but not just any bowl. It's a kintsugi bowl. Kintsugi is the ancient Japanese art of repair with gold. Ken, golden. Tsugi actually means joinedness, repaired, wholeness. And it's repaired with a lacquer that's laced with gold. And this bowl is more valuable as a kintsugi bowl than it was originally. You know why? Because of the investment of the artist. And that's the downside of this metaphor because actually you and I give him this, and we say, we want this to be the case, meaning just make it like it never all happened. No, no, no. We carry with us the scars of our brokenness. And you know what they do, Paul said? That just enables the glory of God to be shown forth and that he's up to something. And so Christmas is not a time to try to pretend this is, hey, hey, pour some eggnog over that and let's pretend it's not there. <laughs> He says, you show me you show me some brokenness that you think is beyond my reach and I will show you my glory and my shalom. Might not be in your timetable but I'm going to do it. It's quite a trade.
The third side that I got to engage with, not just is redemption, is restoration. And by the way, the gospel starts with creation, goes to the fall, then the, from the fall comes redemption, and then comes restoration. He's getting us back to where we started. And to see that happen is the third ingredient, the third reality is his resources. His resources come to bear. For me to engage with shalom is to engage with the resources of God. As one theologian says, the shalom of God is is the provision of adequate resources. He's enough. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the shalom of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 19, and my God will meet all your needs, not wants, needs, according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We talked about this several weeks ago, so I'm not going to talk about it long. Three loaves, two fishes, plus one Jesus. Three loaves plus two fishes plus one Jesus equals what? Enough. And one of the things that freaks us out is we think, I don't have the resources to, to, to get out of this, to, to, to heal. No, we don't, but He does. And He says, trust me, I'll take care of that. Now, I'll give you what you need for the next step. But what about the, the step after that? One step at a time. Oh, yeah, you are enough. I don't know that you're going to be enough. And I'm obeying him in that, which leads to the fourth ingredient that completes the gift box. It's his rule. For me to engage with the shalom of God is to engage with his redemption in light of my guilt. And his restoration in light of my shatteredness, his resources in light of my stress over not having enough, but also his rule that challenges my self-centeredness that causes so much of this in the first place. It's not a matter of, hey, God, let me make this, I'll give you this. Oh, fantastic, see you later. (laughs) For me to embrace his wholeness to embrace Him where He is, is involves me on a daily basis learning to trust Him to the point of obedience and worship and submission. John 16, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have shalom. In this world you will have trouble. Come to Jesus. You won't have any of this. That is not the gospel. In this world, you will have this, but you can take heart. You know why? Because I've overcome, because I'm in charge, because I'm Alpha and Omega, and no amount of shatteredness is beyond my ability to repair. So submit to my rule, which is why the prophet proclaims in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace, and here's the key of the increase of his government and shalom, there will be no end and he will reign. Of the increase of his government and his peace. There's, so, the, what, what's it look like for me to experience more and more shalom is to experience the increase of his government in my life. You guys know the chorus, Hallelujah chorus. I'm going to ask our worship team to come out. We're not going to sing the hallelujah chorus. We're going to sing hallelujah in a different way to get you to focus on it. But the hallelujah chorus is part of Handel's Messiah, George Friedrich Handel, his London premiere in 1743. 
brought the king into attendance, King George II. And what happens when you sing the Hallelujah Chorus? Everybody stands. And people say, why did they stand then? Nobody really knows other than King George was very probably standing because he was acknowledging as the supreme human monarch that he's not the ultimate monarch. And so everybody else stood because King George stood. So I'm going to give you an opportunity in the midst of whatever shatteredness that you're grappling with to say, God, you're worthy. We're going to sing hallelujah. It's a composition of two words in Hebrew. Yah is Yahweh. Hallel is praise, worth, glory, splendor, submission. It's a fully orbed word. Let's sing it. Sing it not from over here in denial of our shreddedness, but sing it in the midst of our shreddedness. And then I'm going to give you a benediction after this pronouncing his peace on you. But right now, sing from your heart.